Hi, I'm Sam Payne, host of The Appleseed, where great stories can change your world. And we're going to do something a little bit special today on The Appleseed. You've heard me talk on the show about how pleased and proud we are to be part of the BYU Radio family of programs. And one of the other programs in that family is Constant Wonder, hosted by the very wonderful Marcus Smith. And I've got him in the studio right now. Marcus, you know, we're going to bring our audience a little of the Constant Wonder magic. But maybe tell us a little bit about Constant Wonder. Well, you know, you're not the first person to ask me, uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about Constant Wonder. What on <laughs> earth is that thing? And uh, you know what? There's there's method to the proverbial madness behind it. We want to explore whatever it is that can't be described. <laughs> now, <laughs> and that puts me in a perplexing situation. Because, and I'm serious about this, actually, Sam, because uh, we, we humans, we tend to think we can explain everything. We have an explanation for everything under the sun. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is there are a lot of things, most of the things that we encounter in this world, in our lives, we just cannot and may never be able to explain. <laughs> and so we have words for them. We say it's wonderful. We say it's magnificent. We say it's transcendent, sublime. You've, you know the, the, the word. Sure, yeah. Uh, the truth of the matter is that in my experience, I have developed a sense of kind of a reverence for it because these things that we can't explain that are real, that are out there in the world from nature to human relationships to uh, music to all of these kinds of inexplicable things make us humble. Yeah. And uh, there is a beauty in exploring that I've found. And, and I think Constant Wonder attempts to tap into that beauty. It's a good place to be, and we don't get enough of it. There's a fellow, Richard Louvre, who wrote a book, Last Child in the Woods. He coined this term, Nature Deficit Disorder. I think we have wonder deficit disorder, mm. uh, where we need more of that. And not just from time to time, I would say every single day. Well, it's a wonderful show, Constant Wonder, and we're going to bring you a little bit of that feeling today as we spend our time with you uh, during this episode of the podcast. An episode of Constant Wonder hosted by Marcus. It's been a pleasure to chat with Marcus just a little bit. And here we go. Constant Wonder on the Appleseed. He operated in broad daylight, never went undercover, never put on a disguise, but he did keep it completely secret from people who knew him. I did this work quietly for five years, give or take. My own family, my own brother, who I'm very close with, he didn't know I was doing this work. Dr. Quan Stewart is a veterinarian. The specific work he's talking about here was done without any monetary compensation. He would walk the streets looking for people who would never consider coming to him. People and ailing pets who would never set foot or paw in a clinic because they had no means to pay for his services. Homeless pet owners and their beloved animals. Quan Stewart says he sometimes felt like Batman, I guess because of the service he rendered and because of his circumspect manner. I mean, his secrecy. I think it was my little quiet crusade that was healing for me. And I would just, I, I didn't want to really speak about it. And I certainly didn't, wasn't looking for attention. I would just go out and... Batman's my favorite superhero. <laughs> I like to think I was just sort of putting on this mask and this cape and going out when nobody knew I was doing this kind of stuff and just doing it. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Quan eventually broke his silence about what he'd been doing, and when his brother Ian, a TV producer, finally learned what was going on, the ball got rolling toward a documentary series 
The Street Vet. It's available on BYU TV, by the way. Homelessness remains a pressing problem in this country, but for everything we hear about homelessness, how often do we think about helping pet owners living on the street with their animals? It's been a revelation to me to learn just how much good can be done for a homeless person by someone like Quan who treats the object of their personal deep affection. Here's a clip from an episode of The Street Vet. Quan meets Bill, the owner of Eli, and this Eli is a dog who urgently needs some surgery. He's got an eye thing, too. Yeah, I see that. So what... That's, that's been a recurring thing. We've gotten creams and stuff and lotions that you know, I put in the eye and stuff. But uh, we haven't had the money to buy it lately. How long has this been going on? Uh, the whole time I've had them. Years? Yeah. Wait, Bill, tell me his name again. Oh, Eli Manning. Eli Manning? Yeah, like the football player. <laughs> well, then I, I must mention, I'm a huge Cowboys fan, so I'm wondering, should I muzzle him? Is he going to bite me when I start yeah, it on this? Yeah, he'll be fine. He loves the Cowboys, too. <laughs> I'm thinking after we treat Eli, I can get Bill to become a Cowboys fan, too. Then it's definitely worth it. The permanent fix is a surgery. I'm going to talk to my colleague, give me a few days, and we're going to set that up and, and get him in and see if we can pass it up for good. Thank you so much. You are the best, brother. You're welcome. You are You're the welcome. Best. We're already better, huh? Oh, got your stuff. I just came here to meet somebody, and and we're doing this now, and he's getting fixed. God's got my back and all this stuff. He no longer flies under the radar, and that would be pretty much impossible anyway, after agreeing to do a TV series that blows your cover. As viewers have gotten to know him, they can't help but see that this Quan is a guy with a heart of gold and ample generosity of spirit all of which I think goes back to his mother. I found this out mere moments after getting to know him. You know, I grew up in San Diego, and I, had a, a, I was a paper boy on a bicycle, and I spent a lot of my time uh, fleeing from dogs that were unleashed. It was kind of a wild neighborhood with a lot of dogs. And uh, I loved my own pets at home, and I feared the ones outside <laughs> that were running wild through the streets. Um, Tell me about you. In in those formative years, I've I guess we should start with your mom and animals. My mom. Wow. I'm, I'm not going to let you get me teared up here in the beginning. That's we can we can get to that later. <laughs> but my mom is a soft spot for me because uh, I think a lot of my appreciation and love for animals um, comes from her. And, and some of it may just be in my blood, in my DNA, because as long as I can remember, I just wanted to be around animals. Uh, we always had pets growing up, uh, and it was usually my mom who encouraged it. My dad, not so much. He didn't grow up with pets, so it was a little bit of a foreign idea. And it's funny, when you don't grow up with animals, um, you become an adult, and then you know, your kids, I want a dog, I want a dog. And it's, you, you know, I hear, I hear this a lot from families who get their first dog. It just never occurred to me to ever get a dog. And like, you know, my kids, their friends had one. And so I thought, well, I guess we better get one. But, but what's cool about those moments is you, you'll see someone who's maybe 40 years old, never been around uh, a dog or a cat, and they'll come in bright eyed at the next exam and they'll share stories about this new pet like it's one of their children. <laughs> And, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of pets. I mean, I know it. I, I felt it for a long time. And 
the energy, the bond, there is something to it. There's something healing, um, majestic and Zen-like in, in these pets and these family companions that we have. He always knew he wanted to be a vet, and he followed that dream pretty much single-mindedly. In college, he had a Burmese python, went to vet school in Colorado, finished there, graduated, moved to sunny Southern California, consulted on movie sets, wearing his veterinarian hat, because animals are used in making movies. Hope you knew that. Today, he advises clients, mainly with Netflix, to make sure animals are being treated well during a film shoot as well as before and after the shoot. And that employment in Hollywood is what helped finance his early work as the street vet. But before taking on this role on the streets, he also had acquired substantial experience and knowledge working at an animal shelter. And it was during this stage of his career that Quan Stewart had a chance encounter that ended up changing his life. And yes, I decided to ask him about it. There is a story about you one day meeting somebody with a dog at, uh, I guess, in front of a 7-Eleven. You you say that that was kind of, I I think this is situated near the recession, soon after 2008, 2009, thereabouts. And uh, was that really a decisive thing? Can you describe what happened? Yeah, that... um... You know, if there's there's one emotional moment that I can still think about my history, it'll make me tear up. It is that moment because I think that was really the jumping off point or the beginning of of me, you know, as a street vet, me taking on this this image, this person, this sort of alter ego was that day in front of Seven Eleven, and this Seven Eleven, by the way, was one that I'd, I'd been to dozens, if not more, a hundred times. I would go and get gas and coffee there on the daily before going to work at the shelter. And there was a about a week and a half where I observed the same man sitting out front with his dog. And he, he looked homeless to me. Um, sometimes you're not sure, but he just had that look. And, and, you know, admittedly, at this time in my life, like so many people, I would just blow by a homeless person without a second look. It, I would just ignore them. I I would do my best to not make eye contact, in fact, because you don't want them ask, asking for something or shaking their cup at you. Or So, you know, I was programmed like that too, um, re- regretfully. But maybe after the seventh or eighth time noticing this guy, out of the side of my eye, I took a closer look at his dog and I could tell his dog was in bad shape. And it looked like to me at first glance, and you do this, I've been doing this now for 25 years, you do this long enough, you can almost diagnose things from across the street. So I could tell it, it had some sort of allergy or flea issue. Bad one, right? And and you think, well, fleas isn't a big deal. But some dogs that have fleas for long enough, I'm talking weeks or months, they develop such um, an, an allergy uh, and such a terrible skin condition from harboring these fleas for so long that it, they look like burn victims. I mean, their, their, their hair on their hind end is gone. Their skin is red and bumpy and raised. It's infected. They're itching and scratching. They're miserable. They're suffering. And I caught that out of the side of my eye. And so I stopped and turned to him and, and introduced myself. I said, I'm Quan Stewart. I'm a veterinarian. I just, I've noticed that your dog seems to have what looks like a really bad flea issue, potentially. He said, he said yes, it's been going on for a long time. I don't know what it is exactly, but she's miserable and, and I'm miserable and itchy and, and, you know, I just, I can't get her help. And I said, well, if you're here tomorrow, I think I have something that may help. And I returned the next day 
it was a, just the most basic flea treatment. It was a few dollars out of my pocket and probably two minutes of my time. I treated the dog and and then didn't see the guy for about a week, week and a half, but caught him later and the dog was transformed. The hair was coming back, the skin issue had resolved, the dog was wagging its tail and the, um, see, it still gets me. The gentleman looked up at me and he, he said, with tears in his eyes, he just said, thank you. He said, no, you know, I've just been ignored and no one, no one would help me or her for the longest time. And he just said, thank you. And, um, you know, that, that moment was powerful for a lot of reasons. One, it, I was working at the shelter at the time where I was doing, you know, society's messy work of euthanizing all these animals. I felt like I was killing my own soul. I felt guilty. And I, you know, I didn't go to vet school to destroy animals. I wanted to save them. And, and that moment gave that back to me. Um, it felt like, it felt like I was redeeming myself in some ways, maybe, or making up for, for some of the, you know, the bad things I've, I've unfortunately had the hard things I've had to do in my career, like euthanize a healthy dog. And that, that moment seemed to give that back to me. And I, I really, you know, in that moment I said, yeah, I'm going to do this again. It felt so good. I just said, I'm going to do it again. And so I, I hosted my own little makeshift pop-up clinic about a month later at a soup kitchen. So anybody in line who had a pet, I just called over and said, you know, I'm, I'll help your pet for free and no charge. And I had a line of maybe five or six people. And, and that was the beginning of it. I, what I noticed when I had that line of people and I was helping those pets is um, two or three of them said, I have a friend. I also have a friend who's, who couldn't make it. They, you know, they live under a bridge or they live in this part of town. They didn't know you were going to be here. Is it possible for you to go to them? And I thought to myself, yeah, why not? <laughs> What's stopping me? So that's when I started walking the streets. And, and that, was, that was it. The rest is yeah. history, I okay. guess. Okay, walking the streets... What's your, what's your frequency of being out and doing this specifically? It varies. It's, you know, I have a full-time job. I have a family, kids, and um, it's, it's when I have free time. Sometimes it's a Saturday. Sometimes it's an afternoon when I get off work a little early. I carry my little kit with me typically in my car. So if I do happen upon someone driving home from work or going to the grocery store and I, I come across an unhoused person with a pet, I'll, I'll stop by, I'll stop off and just ask, is there anything I can do? So it's, it's really haphazard, um, but I, I do it you know, as much as I can. Is it 50-50 when it comes to the, the creature you're helping? I mean, is it like you're, you seem to be invested in the animals, yes, but you're treating the people. I am, yes, I'm treating both, and that's sort of the beauty of it. I, you know... I'll be walking in an alley in Skid Row, for example, and turn the corner around a dumpster and there is somebody living there, right? Maybe under a tarp or a tent or just sleeping with their pet. And it almost startles them, right? Just not expecting someone to walk up on them that quickly. And sometimes it catches me by surprise. And as soon as I notice the pet, I'll announce who I am and, and ask, is it okay if I take a look? And most people are agreeable. I'd say maybe 5%, they're reticent or they're suspicious. They don't know my true intentions. I, maybe they don't believe who I am, who I say I am. But most of the time, no, they, they allow me to, to take a knee and then I'll just get to work. I'll take out my stethoscope and I'll just like any, any exam in any clinic. I, you know, that 
that dumpster, <laughs> the, the left side of that dumpster turns into my exam room. And I just, I give them all the respect and time that I would any paying client. And it is, it's, yes, because I think a lot of these people have lost some hope or faith in humanity and, you know, they're, they're desperate for, for help. And a lot of people just walk by them and ignore them like I did, sadly, for so many years. I think it is healing for them. And it's healing for me too. Not to mention the pet, obviously, but we do, we do have a very human moment oftentimes. So when you find yourself out on the street with an animal crouching down by it, the owner's there, I don't know, maybe you're under a bridge next to a dumpster somewhere. Does the thought ever cross your mind, man, I never thought that practicing medicine was going to be like this? You know, when I graduated vet school at Colorado State, I had this dream of leaving the desert, the dusty desert, and going straight to San Diego and working on the beach. That was my dream growing up. I was going to be a vet and I was going to work by the ocean. And I lived it out. I moved to San Diego and found a job and I had a clientele with bottomless bank accounts and I was working in this beautiful um, hospital in, in Hillcrest, San Diego, and I loved it. What I realized over time is I, I became a little bit entitled. I didn't I didn't know what else was out there. I was, you know, two years out of school, working in San Diego, living the good life. Clientele could pay for and do whatever I suggested. And that was my course for a while until I started having these experiences at the shelter and then eventually on the street. And the, the shelter prepared me, I think, a little bit for the street work because the shelter I worked at at first was this 40-year-old dilapidated you know, it smelled like rust and sewage and feces. And there were 10 to 12 dogs overcrowded in a very small space. And it was cold during the winter and brutally hot during the summer. And, and I was outside, you know, these kennels are outside. So I was a little bit tempered for the street work. It wasn't like I just dropped into Skid Row um, because that would have been a shock to my system. I, I had apparently, God had been preparing me for this moment to go out on the streets and start doing some of this work, I guess, because it didn't really shock me when I was out there. Venice Beach, there's somebody named Justin. He has a cat. I think the cat's name is, is Um. Mm -hmm. Um, the traveler, yeah. Yeah, so this cat and Justin, this is also, it begins as a flea story, I guess, but it gets worse than that. Yeah. Uh, again, I was walking the Venice area, met Justin. He, he has this skateboard riding cat <laughs> as his companion. Um, um, the traveler, um, would ride up on his shoulders and, and Justin was, he was just a nomad. He would travel around on a skateboard with his, his backpack and his stuff and quote unquote break camp in different cities or areas of town. He just loved being outside. And um, just yeah, uh, basically problem, but really a healthy cat. He had rescued um from a dumpster, and they were they were buddies. I mean, that was that was his baby. And it was a few days later after meeting Justin that um got hit by a car. He was skateboarding on a busy a busy roadside, and I think um somehow got off his shoulders or tumbled and went underneath a car. And he called me frantic, crying. I drove across town to meet him. It took me about an hour and a half in LA traffic. And yes, there was some, some major damage to um, the diaphragm, fractured femur. It took a lot of work and time to put them um, back together and a lot of money. But it was all, um, it was all done pro bono and we, we were able to save his cat. Does somebody like that with a cat just then disappear out of your life? No, Justin stayed in touch, actually. Uh, and a lot of these folks don't. I, I'll tell you something that surprises a lot of people. I give my cell number 
to just about everybody I meet on the streets. I don't know that I've met anybody yet who doesn't have a cell phone or access to one. Um, they may not have a place to sleep or any belongings, but surprisingly, almost all of them have cell phones. So, uh, so that they can follow up with me since I am now their vet and I, I want them to check back in with me. I want them to call me if, um, if there's a, say a vaccine reaction or we, I need to follow up with different antibiotics, I am their vet. So they need to have access to me. So I give out my personal cell number to these people. And yes, a lot of them will follow up with me just sometimes to say thank you. Yes, they need a, a recheck is required or just to update me on what they're doing. And Justin's that guy who updates us maybe twice a year on, his, on what he's doing. He's living in San Francisco right now. We hear about homeless people often that there's a, a high contingent of the population of the homeless who are dealing with mental health issues. And if somebody with a, a mental health issue has got an animal in need, then even the treatment might be confusing for that person. Do you have to navigate that sometimes to go into greater detail to reassure, say, the owner of a pet that, that this is what the animal really needs and I'm here to help? Yeah, you raise a good point, and I'm glad you did, because the question that I still get hit with, and, and it's a fair question, is should these you know, folks be allowed to even own an animal? Is it eth ethical for them to take on the responsibility of an animal when they're barely caring for themselves? In the beginning, I said no, and I have completely walked that back because I see the immense value that they provide for each other. Um, and, you know, they make sacrifices for their pet that you and I just don't. They do. They, they'll give up their own meals. They will refuse going into temporary housing um, for their pet. And, you know, the hope, the love, the companionship, there is so much wrapped into an animal. So to, to answer your question, I'll, I'll tell you this quick story. There was a man I met on the streets. His name was Walter. He had a dog named Dinker. Dinker was, uh, looked like a, a Labrador cross, big dog. Um, sort of a light brown coat, shiny, uh, beautiful dog. Rescued, uh, Walter rescued Dinker in an alley as well as a puppy. Walter at the time had been suffering and dealing with substance abuse issues for the better part of 10 years, he told me. Alcohol, drugs. Um, the city provides services in LA. It's, it's pretty um, good about that. So he had therapy for, for a number of these things. He was on medication for a lot of these things. He said when he got Dinker and developed this relationship, which he, he said he just couldn't put into words, there was no therapy session, there was no pill that could replace Dinker. That's what this dog did for him. He said it's, it's his reason for getting up in the morning. Um, he knows that he has to be responsible and accountable when he's caring for this creature. And it just completely um, changed his attitude and gave him a sense of purpose. So no, it... To, to me, hearing a story that Dinker was better than any pill he'd ever taken, that said it all. When it comes to my observation of mental illness on the streets, yes, it's, it's obvious. You see, you'll see extreme cases of mental illness. Those are the people walking down the streets or holding up their pants, talking to themselves. But I'll tell you that, I mean, and I've, I've sat down and examined hundreds of animals now on the streets. I can't recall one person who was very clearly mentally disturbed to me. Who owns a pet? Who owns a pet? And my theory on that is for you to own a pet and keep it alive and care for it, you have to have your act together a little bit. You have to have the mental wherewithal 
to feed it, care for it, know its needs, look after it. And people that are um, struggling with severe mental illness, they just, they can't do that. You know, to answer your question, I guess, I, I really haven't come across people on the streets who own pets that are suffering from what I can observe. I'm no psychologist, but from what I can tell, what common sense is telling me, are suffering from severe mental illness. I just, and, and if they did, there's, I just don't see any way they could hold on to that pet. So if it gives anybody any reassurance, you should know that the people, and I have a large case study of probably over a thousand people and pets now that I've seen, the people that um, are parenting these pets on the streets are for the most part pretty mentally sharp and have their act together well enough that they can care for this, this animal. I just want to follow up on the idea that there was a life change, a, a new direction. You haven't left it. You've been doing it now for a lot of years. And where do you see this going long-term? Are, is it, is it uh, more homeless people with pets and you're there to stay? Are you branching out? Are you making converts and getting other people to become street vets? <laughs> I never thought I'd be in this position, but now I... I see, I see how powerful it can be. I, I have, I guess, inspired others. There are people that want to do this work, not just in, the, in America, but I, I have uh, people in other countries, in South America and in Hong Kong, and people reach out to me and they, I see that my reach is not just national, but it is potentially global. And I'm going to keep doing the work. Homelessness is not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. I wish I was put out of business, but as long as there are pets on the streets, I will continue to do this work in, in some capacity. The next iteration of my career, aside from the street work, is I am now starting to open up a group of veterinary hospitals and clinics in Southern California. So um, I've partnered with Papaya Pet Care. I am their chief medical officer, and we just opened our first clinic here in San Diego. We're opening five more in Southern California this year alone. And the plan is open 40 more, 40 to 50 more in the next five years. Ultrasound, we have laser therapy, digital x-ray, all the bells and whistles I have at my disposal. And now, instead of having to refer some of these street cases to a colleague and having to pay out of my own pocket a lot of times for the procedure, I can bring them now to my own clinic here in San Diego. We started GoFundMe a few years ago. Um, and that, you know, the generosity of people has been amazing. And I do have a pretty decent war chest of funds to draw from, uh, so I don't have to turn pets away or, or tell them that, you know, sadly I can't afford this procedure. I, for the most part, I can, I can fund or uh, front um, just about any procedure for just about any animal. And the more we tell the stories, the more, of course, people are willing to donate, want to donate to the mission. And so it just, it rolls on. And now it's, it's actually steamrolling. So for a lot of reasons, I'm very fortunate. And after 25 years, I, I feel reinvigorated. I felt like I've never had more energy or been more inspired to, to continue doing this work. Sincere thanks to Dr. Quan Stewart for taking time with us to share his story. You can catch his series, The Street Vet, on BYU-TV. Thanks also to our producers for this episode of Constant Wonder, Tenery Taylor and Paige Crumperman-Darrington, as well as to our sound designers, Parker Schmidt, and the rest of the crew on the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.
It's been such a pleasure for me to bring you a little bit of constant wonder to our Appleseed time together today. Uh, I uh, often on the show talk about how pleased and proud we are to be part of the BYU Radio family of programs. Constant Wonder is another member of that family. You can find Constant Wonder uh, on the BYU Radio app or certainly by Googling the Constant Wonder podcast or at byuradio.org. Next time we're together, of course, we'll be back to normal, bringing you the tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family tales, and more. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed.